1 Samuel chapter 7. And I'm starting a series. I don't know how long it'll last. I'm sure it'll be at least six messages anyway. Uh, Various different thoughts about what I should call it. I was uh, initially going to call it somebody chucking sweets in the back row. Tim. Um, I was going to call it, and this is a quite appropriate act, I was going to call it Acts of War. Um, and then I thought maybe that's a wee bit too dramatic. And then I thought I'll call it Destructive Lifestyles. I want to call you to live a destructive lifestyle. <laughs> now that could be misunderstood, so give me time. Um, what I've been thinking about is spiritual warfare. And what we tend to do in the church sometimes is when we hear the term spiritual warfare, we think, right, I'm praying for somebody who needs deliverance. I'm engaging directly with the enemy, spiritual warfare. We tend to think of spiritual warfare as something we do from time to time as the need arises. But I want to invite you to a lifestyle of warfare, a destructive lifestyle, where the one getting destroyed is the enemy, not you. The destruction is being done to him and to his kingdom, And I want to look at ways of living that you might not necessarily associate with spiritual warfare, but they are acts of war. They are are patterns of life and behavior that do great damage to the darkness. And if a community can live these destructive lifestyles together, I believe a town can be blessed and can be affected by it. So I'm going to look at some things, again, that you wouldn't associate with spiritual warfare. We'll take a week and we'll look at forgiveness. Because if we don't forgive, Satan gets access. We don't want Satan to get access. We want Satan kicked out. We want the darkness kicked back. So we want to live lives of forgiveness because that is a destructive lifestyle. That's a lifestyle that will destroy the kingdom of the enemy and his attempts to invade and do damage. We will look at holiness. What does it actually mean to live and lead a holy life? Because that will damage the enemy's kingdom. We will look at faith as opposed to fear because he tries to come in and bring fear into our lives. So if we live lives of great faith, we do great destruction to his kingdom. Do you get me? So I'm talking about things that are 24-7. I'm not talking about how you pray on a specific occasion because you need to, because you're faced with something that's, that's dark and challenging. And yes, that's important and that happens. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about every day, how we live in a way that pushes back the darkness and destroys the kingdom of God. So that's what I mean by destructive lifestyles. I'm going to read... First uh, Samuel verse, or chapter 7, and I'm going to read from verse 7 to round about verse 13 or so. Please, please look on at it or, or peep at somebody else's Bible if they have one. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. So this is the attack of the enemy on God's people. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. Now this is the verse that just got me a couple of weeks ago one morning. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, 
the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, may your word and spirit take this, this thought, this idea that I believe has, has come as a word from your mouth and may it be greatly effective in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing, the Lord thundered against the enemy. And I want to talk this morning as a destructive lifestyle that destroys and damages the enemy is a lifestyle of sacrifice, sacrificial living, sacrificial living. This is the first destructive lifestyle of maybe, I don't know, six or eight. We'll see how it goes. I have a long list and a notebook at home. We'll see where we end up. Please notice that in this passage, Samuel does not engage with the enemy. Samuel engages with the Lord. And the Lord engages with the enemy. Do you want to see God thundering into the darkness? Do you want to see God thundering against the enemy? Do you want to see him thunder against lives being wasted? Do you want to see him thunder into, into depression? Do you want to see him thunder into suicidal thoughts and tendencies? Do you want to see him thunder into self-harm? Do you want to see him thunder into broken relationships and all of the things that he tries to do to pull human beings apart? My Bible says here that while Samuel was sacrificing, the Lord thundered against the enemy. And I take that simply to mean for me and for us, if we lead sacrificial lifestyles, God will thunder into the darkness. Do you hear me? Do you believe it? Yeah, it looks like you do. Um, so what does sacrifice actually mean? The Old Testament sacrificial system has been fulfilled, dealt with, completed, put away by King Jesus. We read about that in Hebrews 10 in particular. His sacrifice for sin once for all has put an end to the sacrificial system. And you can hear the lambs and the sheep and all on the hillsides shouting hallelujah. They are, they are okay. But the principle of living a sacrificial life remains. All right? So sacrifice for sin, no need anymore. But the principle of sacrificial living is still there. And it's at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Can you go to Mark chapter 8, please? Mark chapter 8, just do you see this? So sacrifices, physical sacrifices, gone. But sacrifice as a lifestyle never goes. Mark chapter 8 towards the end of the chapter if anybody ever asks you to sum up what discipleship is this is it at the end of chapter 8 verse 34 he called jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel 
will save it. Sacrificial living. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you see that principle in there of sacrificial living for those who follow Jesus? Whoever wants to save his life loses it. If we are consumed with selfishness, we will not ever fully live. But when we lay down our lives for Jesus and for the gospel, then we truly find life. We truly find what it means to be alive. It has got to be a sacrifice. There has to be a laying down in order to encounter that life. And the opposite of sacrifice really is selfishness, which is rampant. And you can't just sit here and say, look at all the selfish people out there in the world, because selfishness comes after all of us on a very, very regular basis. The enemy is constantly trying to get me to put me in the center of everything. That's what he does, and we justify it. According to the parable of the sower a few chapters earlier in Mark, a lot of people hear the word and they come with great enthusiasm, but hard times come, represented by the heat of the sun. Or distractions come, represented by cares and riches, and they fall away. They fall away. They were not willing to take up the cross and follow Jesus. They were not willing to die to themselves, and selfishness still determines who they are and what they do. And we have to constantly, daily take up the cross. Otherwise, selfishness will creep in. I want to live a life of of sacrifice that sees God thunder against the enemy. I've got to stand viciously against selfish notions that creep in and try to make my needs the center of everything. I conclude sometimes, maybe too quickly, but I see teenagers struggling. In, in school and in other contexts as well. And this is not always the issue, but behind quite a lot of them, there are selfish parents who simply have not been willing to lay down their lives in order to love their children and raise their children. And they, because they're selfish and they still want to run after all their own stuff and all their own leisure and all their own things, they're not willing to lay them down. And the kids then basically just try to make it on their own and it usually doesn't turn out that well selfishness is is tearing society apart romans 12 tells us a little bit more about living sacrificially romans chapter 12 again go to it you know it you've heard of it you've you've, you know the verses i'm going to if you're familiar with with romans at all to make this point paul has has written Some deep, profound, powerful things for 11 chapters in the book of Romans. 11 chapters. And he's just had had about three chapters on Israel and, and, and the church. And then at the start of chapter 12, he says, therefore. So in the light of everything that he has said for 11 chapters, he's going to then come to a a point because of all of this. He says, I I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
And you read about God's mercy in Romans over and over again about how the the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And we read so many times about what Jesus has done for us to give us life in Romans. We know all about God's mercy. And Paul now, he hinges from that and he says, in light of all of this mercy, all of this grace and forgiveness and life and spirit that we have been given. He says, in light of all that, there is a response that is required. And the response is that you present your body as a living sacrifice. He's not just talking about your arms and legs and and whatever else. He's talking about your whole person, your whole life. So don't don't just reduce this to physical, but that includes physical. And Paul is using the image of a a worshipper in the Old Testament coming to the temple. And the the, the worshipper has an offering that is going to be burnt on the altar completely. All of it gone. None of it will be kept back. It is, in Leviticus 1, it is a whole burnt offering. And Paul is using that picture. You, you, You would go to your flock and you would pick out the best animal. Not a weak, sick one that you don't really want that's actually become a pain to look after and you're not going to get any money for it. It's not going to be any good to you. Your very best. You put the thing on the altar and it is completely burnt up. And in the ancient world, a sacrifice started off as being something that was alive and the process of sacrifice had died. But Paul has this, and again, it's one of those phrases in the Bible you've heard so many times that you maybe never have actually really dwelt on it. He says, living sacrifice that's like talking about white coal or fried ice it's just a complete oxymoron it's a complete contradiction a living sacrifice we are still physically alive but our lives are lived sacrificially unto god completely totally remember the point of the whole the whole message the whole whole point is Can we find these destructive lifestyles that will thunder against the enemy? Can we find a way that is actually spiritual warfare 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And Paul says, here's one right here. Living sacrifice. Live sacrificially and watch the enemy's kingdom getting rattled. Now in the New Testament, it's a common picture to to hear Paul, especially writing about being crucified with Christ. Theologians will tell you that that Jesus died as a substitution. He did. He died in our place. He died in our place. He took my place and your place. But he's not just substitution. He invites participation. He says, you take up your cross as well. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20 about how he is crucified with Christ. And yet he lives. He writes in Romans Six, that we we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our bodies ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Do you think no longer being a slave to sin would damage the kingdom of darkness? (laughs) Do you think that that would send shockwaves through the enemy's kingdom when we are no longer slaves to sin? The way to no longer be a slave to sin is to be crucified. It's to die. It's to be sacrificed. Laid on the altar, everything given to Jesus. So what does it look like? If you're sitting there thinking, yes, I would like to see God thunder against the enemy. I'd like to live a sacrificial life. Tell me some stuff to do, right? Give me a list that I can go go and start trying to do some things. Well, 
you'll find it not too far away from Romans 12 verse 1. We'll come back to verse 2 later, but basically the rest of the chapter after that tells you how to live a sacrificial life. Now, do please look at it. Look at your phone, look at the Bible, look at something. But look, here are the things that Paul elaborates on when he says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. Immediately afterwards, this is the stuff that's in his mind. And I'm going to read it. Just take time to actually read the scripture because that's so much better than my words. Look at verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That's sacrificial living. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't make the world revolve around you and your needs and your problems. Just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ... We who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. That's sacrificial living. We're part of a body. We belong to one another. Present your body as a living sacrifice so that his body will be built up, strengthened. We've different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in, pro- in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it, if it is teaching, let him teach. Encouraging, let him encourage. Contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. That's sacrificial living. Prophesying the word of God to one another. Teaching, encouraging. Making time to actually encourage people. Contributing to the needs of others. Generosity. That's one of the more obvious ones. Sacrificial living. Here's another whole list of them. Let let love be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Sacrificial living. Do you want to see God thunder against the enemy? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Try that. It's the only way to fly. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful. Sacrificial living, it's a command. Be joyful. Be joyful. That's a way to live sacrificially. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Goodness me, folks, you have enough to keep you going there for a long, long time. Share with those who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bang. Open the door, open the table, bring people in, meet people out, whatever. Sacrificial living. Giving of yourself for the building up of the body and for others. How else can we live sacrificially? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You've lived any length of time. People have cursed you. People have persecuted you. Sacrificial living blesses them. And the enemy's rattled. And God thunders as I declare blessing instead of responding with persecution. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is, in, what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. Verse 21, don't overcome Or don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. There's a whole lot there to get on with, isn't there? 
That's what living sacrificial lives looks like. It's not about me. <laughs> Once consumerism creeps into the church and into the lives of Christians and it becomes all about me, the wheels come off the, the wagon very, very quickly. It's not about me. But if I live that sacrificial life, the irony is, as I lay myself on the altar and give myself 24-7 to God, to his people, I die, but at the same time I encounter a life that is greater than anything I could achieve myself. His life comes within us. I'm crucified with Christ, but yet I live, not I, but Christ lives in me, laying down our lives. You know, this is, this is Christianity. What Jesus talks about in Mark 8 when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's Christianity. There is no other. That's not just for the special ones, whoever they might be. It's not just for the sort of super holy people who, who never mess up and get everything right all the time. That's Christianity. There is no other version. There is no light diet, sugar-free version of Christianity. That's it. Are you in? <laughs> Deny yourself. My needs don't matter anymore. Take up the cross. I'm a living sacrifice and follow Jesus. I've told you before the word Christian, I think, has lost a lot of its meaning. But the words following Jesus have a heck of a lot of meaning in them. Are you in? Are you in? Thinking about, about Rob Mark's song earlier, that, I don't know whether it was the first one he wrote, but it was one of the first ones, All for Jesus. All of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. Just lay it all down. Do with me what you want, Lord. So a, a huge shift in our thinking needs to happen if we're going to live like this. And then we go back to verse 2 of Romans 12, where, where Paul says, Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conforming means outside pressures are shaping something. Don't be conformed to the world around you. The pressure on Christians and on the church to soften up on their views, to start to say things are okay which are not okay, that's the world trying to cause the church and the people of God to conform, to bend and be molded by outside pressure. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. That's not external pressure. That's internal power. <laughs> that's the Holy Ghost in us, transforming us through, I believe, mostly the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit, being renewed in our minds in how we think, constantly exposed to His Word and feeding on it. And Paul says that's our spiritual act of worship. At the end of verse 1, being a living sacrifice is a spiritual act of worship. In Greek, that word that's translated spiritual is the word logical. And some Bibles say it's your reasonable act in light of what God has done, it's only reasonable that this is how we should live. But as some wag once said, the problem with a living sacrifice 
is that it keeps climbing off the altar. <laughs> yeah. You lay yourself on the altar onto God, but then you get up and you get off again. <laughs> you come to the cross, but then you leave, you leave it again. Or you get misled into thinking that somehow there's another Christianity, that you know, there's another level we've got to the cross, and now we move on to a different level. There's no other level. There's the cross. There's the cross, and we never leave it. And one of the things we've started doing here every Tuesday night when we gather for prayer is we're breaking bread every Tuesday night. We're taking bread and we're taking wine and we're just saying, Jesus, you are at the heart of everything. The cross. The only logical response to someone who has truly encountered King Jesus, who has truly gazed upon his cross, is to turn and to lay their own lives on the altar as well. I'm coming to a finish. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, Remember the point, I keep repeating myself, but that means you'll get it. What are the lifestyles? What are the destructive lifestyles that we can live that will be a wrecking ball against the darkness in our families, in our towns, in our workplaces, wherever, in our own personal lives? I love this picture of what happened at the cross that Paul writes about in Colossians 2. Um, starting from verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's a verse. Yeah. Colossians 2.15. Who are these powers and authorities? They're the same powers and authorities we, we read about back in June in Ephesians chapter 6 when we were doing the armor of God. It's the darkness. It's demons. It is that the darkness in the heavenly realms that Paul talks about in Ephesians. All that is opposed to God. All that is opposed to King Jesus. All that wants to destroy humanity, destroy People destroy relationships, destroy life. Everything that is just opposed to God. That's the powers and authorities. Now you imagine if I was to come running at you, threatening to beat you repeatedly. Well, maybe not me, maybe somebody bigger. Um, someone was to come, come running at you and, and roaring and screaming that, you know, with their hands up, and I'm going to absolutely pummel you. I'm going to beat you to death when I get near you. Now, Change the image slightly and the person running at you, threatening to beat you, doesn't have any arms or has their arms tied behind their back. And they're running at you, roaring these threats. I am going to beat you to a pulp. And then you look and you see they don't have any hands. They don't have any arms. And you're not so threatened anymore by their shouting and by their running at you. Jesus dis armed Satan on the cross and what the word disarmed means believe it or not is he took off his arms hmm. 
because Old Testament and ancient warfare was done with the arms, with the hands. And what you did when you captured your enemy was you cut off their hands. And therefore, they're no longer a threat to you. It's not like modern warfare where a button can be pushed and a missile launched or whatever. You had to do hand-to-hand combat. You had to operate weapons with your hands. And if you had no hands, you weren't fighting. And what you did whenever you captured your enemy was you disarmed them. You literally disarmed them. Off come your arms. You're not going to be a threat anymore to my people. This is what happened in 1 Samuel 5 when Dagon fell in the temple and his arms were taken off. And it's what happened Jesus at the cross. Or sorry, it's it's what Jesus did to Satan at the cross and to the principalities and powers. He disarmed them, decommissioned them. So when the devil shouts and screams threats at you, he has no arms to fulfill them. He can't do it. All he can do is shout and try to engender fear. He doesn't have any arms because Jesus has disarmed him at the cross. So lust has been disarmed and depression has been disarmed and addiction and anger and self-harm and shame and guilt, they have all been disarmed. (coughs) Their ability to do you damage has gone. Sometimes you watch movies and there's a, a shoot up scene in the, in the film, especially if it's a sort of a Western film where the, the gun holds six bullets in the, in the chamber, holds six shooter. And, and there's you know, bullets flying and you know, one, two, three, four, and then you maybe lose count and you get to that point where you're thinking, are there any bullets left in the gun? Satan has no bullets in his gun. He shot them all at Jesus and Jesus took the lot. He has nothing left. You understand? He's been decommissioned, disarmed. He is not able to actually harm you other than through his words and his threats and the fear that he brings. He has been decommissioned. Isaiah 54 says, No weapon turned against you shall succeed, and you will silence every voice that's raised up to accuse you. But I want you to understand how this victory was won. Satan was not disarmed at the empty tomb in the garden. He was disarmed when Jesus was on the cross. Now get this, church. It was the moment of sacrifice that was the moment of victory. We read in the New Testament about victory. It's in the context of the cross, not the empty tomb. In Revelation 5, it's a lion who overcame as a lamb. And is worthy because he was slain. He overcame as a lamb. In Hebrews 2.14 we read that by his death he would break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. In John 12 when Jesus begins to turn his eyes to the cross and says now my hour has come. Now the prince of this world is cast out. It is at the moment of sacrifice (coughs) that victory comes. That the enemy is disarmed and defeated. It was the death of Jesus that ended Satan's rule. So much so that I believe at that moment on Good Friday when Jesus gave up his spirit. And the rocks split and the temple curtain was torn in two and the graves opened and Satan said, What have I done? Have you ever done that? (laughs) You've done something and just as soon as you've done it, usually it involves hitting sand. (laughs) You know? And you're just like, what have I done? 
when you imagine that multiplied infinitely, that's how he felt at that moment when Jesus breathed his last. Because sacrifice brought victory. And sacrifice brought defeat to the enemy. Do you want to live a life of spiritual warfare? Do you want to have a destructive lifestyle that just swings a wrecking ball at the enemy 24-7? Not just now and again when you're in a, in a, in a sort of slightly heated prayer time. But 24-7 wrecks his kingdom. You need to live a sacrificial life. I think my favorite image in all of the Old Testament is the image of Samson. Who was a tremendously <coughs> gifted man. But for decades he just saw a wee victory here and there. You know, he, he, would, he would have a victory and he would kill a few Philistines. And then he would go off and just do what he wanted for, for years. And then he would have another wee victory. But at the moment that he chose to die, he stood between the pillars and he put his hands on the pillars and you better believe it, it is the clearest picture of Jesus, I think, in the entire Old Testament as Samson stands with his hands out like that against the pillars. And when he says he is willing to die and he asks for the power of God to come upon him one more time to avenge the Philistines in his death, and he pushes out the pillars and the house comes down and the enemy suffers huge damage. But after decades of little flurries now and again for Samson, the huge victory came at the moment of sacrifice. Folks, we need to live like that. What I was saying earlier, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Incense rises from an offering that is being burned we sometimes pray for the fire of God. And I believe if we could hear God audibly, he would say, give me something to burn. We want his fire, but we don't want to get on the altar and actually be burned. But if we want people around us to see the fire of God, there's got to be an offering on the altar. Give him something to burn. Hold that picture of Samuel, if you would, in your mind. As you think over this and as we worship, we will take a morning and just talk about praise as spiritual warfare as well, a life of praise. But I want you to hold that picture of Samuel. While Samuel was making the sacrifice, God thundered against the enemy. Amen. Father, we love you. And we love your word and we love the truth that you have spoken into our hearts through it today, Father. And we pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us afresh with fight and determination and vigor because we want to see the kingdom of darkness suffer great damage and great violence, Lord. And we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see Jesus enthroned in our lives, in our community. We want to see the enemy dethroned completely. Every stronghold that he has, we want to see it come crumbling down in the name of Jesus. So, Lord, will you teach us and will you show us how to live lifestyles that are destructive to his kingdom that are wrecking balls against the darkness father for we want to see your kingdom come we want to see your name lifted high we want to see lives transformed in this town father will you take away every root of selfishness that that rises up within us lord will you help us to stay on that altar and to live lives completely given over unto you lord for that's where the victory comes. We take our lead from the cross and from King Jesus. 
At that moment, at that moment, Lord, that you gave yourself, the enemy was crushed. His head crushed beneath your feet. Lord, may we live inspired by you, following you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.